Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Joining me today, I have a colleague whose name is Christopher Sands, and he has been with us for a few months, but he's relatively new at the Wilson Center. He is the director of our Canada Institute, which I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but this is the only institute in Washington that's actually looking only at Canada. I think that's right. There there have been different attempts at different think tanks to do short-term projects, but Wilson's got the dedicated effort, and I think really reflects the importance that Canada has uh, to the United States. And although it's a country that I think a lot of people have some familiarity with, they may have visited over time, it isn't exactly like the United States. There are quite quite a few interesting wrinkles, and uh, we're seeing growing interest in, in sort of why Canada is slightly different and whether it offers us a, a model uh, in some respects on different policy issues. When usually when we when we talk about Canada, we talk about it in the context of trade. And I think, you know, maybe some of what we talk about today is in that but I wanted to get to a, a kind of a more fundamental question that states and localities and provinces in Canada have been dealing with, which is reopening their economies you know, as we try to come out of this coronavirus challenge. And you have been tracking this reopening process. Tell us a little bit about this project that you have going on. Absolutely. We um, we started looking at the states and the provinces. And in Canada, cities and localities are creatures of the province, so they're better coordinated. In the U.S., of course, you've got counties and cities with their own independent authority. And together, uh, all of these jurisdictions have imposed some level of uh, economic closure to try to stem the spread of COVID. Now, they're guided usually by national or federal uh, public health officials that have been using the best data to kind of guide the process. But the actual closures uh, have been done at the local level. And where this comes into play is as we start thinking about opening up, you have now, thanks to 25 years of NAFTA and now the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, a lot of what we produce almost 50% of, of all of our trade is in what they call intermediate goods, things that are widgets that go into other widgets that produce a final product someplace along a supply chain that crosses into multiple jurisdictions. So businesses, particularly the large ones like automotive firms or energy firms, were coming to the Wilson Center and asking us, so how do you how do you map out these openings and synchronize them in such a way that you could um, assess whether you're going to be able to open up your business, which is in multiple jurisdictions. So if you're, uh, if you're General Motors and you're opening up uh, automotive production, you get bits and bobs from all over North America. How do you know when everything's uh, opened up again and you're able to function? And what's the risk that, say, a particular jurisdiction that's in a key spot might stay closed and prevent that plant from contributing to your supply chain. So you then have to stop everything or, or find an alternative supplier. And those questions affect, affect whether people are going to be able to get back to work. And they're independent of the decisions that local governments are making uh, so far in a uh, uncoordinated fashion. But, but this is sort of the interesting thing for us. While the efforts by states and provinces and localities haven't necessarily been coordinated, 
those jurisdictions themselves have been asking the question, how do we find out what the neighbors are doing, particularly neighbors in Canada, because for American jurisdictions, that's not exactly going to appear in their regular news feed. So they're curious, like, what are others doing and how can we synchronize best practice and, and get the best reopening and the best economic benefit of reopening that we can? And so what are you finding when you talk to businesses or localities and states and provinces on both sides of the border? What are you finding as far as is there is there a coordination? Is there a uh, maybe more concern on one side of the border versus the other? What's the, the dynamic there, uh, which is very important as we move forward? Well, uh, to give you an example, um, uh, there was a lot of news in the last week about uh, Elon Musk and opening up a Tesla plant that's in Fremont, California. That plant was originally a General Motors plant, and then it was the home of a General Motors-Toyota joint venture, which Toyota had closed down, and that was chosen as a spot uh, for, for Tesla manufacturing. And a local uh, public health official said, you can't reopen production because uh, for public health reasons, we won't allow that activity. At the same time, uh, Michigan was moving ahead, trying to reopen automotive manufacturing, and Ontario, which is the province that is most involved in, uh, in automotive manufacturing, was looking at what Michigan was doing and trying to sync up their opening so that they weren't at a disadvantage. Um, and you had Mexico uh, at the other end of the supply chain with several key plants, including a plant that makes automotive batteries for quite a number of the OEM manufacturers, original equipment manufacturers, um, that was being told by the Mexican federal government, you cannot open. And what companies were talking about is, well, maybe it doesn't make sense to build cars in California if you don't have a compatible or encouraging government. Uh, maybe we need to be in the automotive sort of heartland because that's where states and jurisdictions are responsive to the auto sector because there's just so much activity there. This is where I think um, a lot of the current uh, opening debate is going to hinge as jurisdictions look at whether their decision on opening or, or not opening has an effect on their competitiveness for future investment and, and economic activity. The other thing that's interesting about this process is that states are trying to make data-driven decisions, as are Canadian provinces and so everybody else. And in areas where there isn't a lot of density, um, you, you think about states in, in farm country where people aren't uh, necessarily living uh, as they do in a city like New York or Detroit, um, in those confined conditions where the pandemic could spread, they, they see their risk factor as lower, their, their cases are fewer, and they feel a little more confident in allowing activity as long as um, with some guidance on, on how to be safe about it. Whereas some of the denser jurisdictions where a lot of economic activity has been, has been concentrated are more reluctant. And if you think about that automotive alley again, you've got a city like Detroit, which is a hot spot and has had a real uh, outbreak of, of COVID-19 uh, that sits right on the border with Canada and is, is sort of a linchpin. The supply chain goes through Detroit, but the question is, you know, if it's just passing through, what is that? What will that ultimately mean for um, for the auto sector? Probably not much. They can they can continue to go past Detroit and and not have a particular risk factor. But um, that 
also goes to why Canada, I think, has been a little bit reluctant. And, and culturally, Canada is a little more risk averse. Canadians are a little, little more cautious on, on something like this. They have a lower overall density, but then pockets like Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver, where, where density can be a factor and, and COVID has, has been a bit more prevalent. They look in Ontario and Quebec, the two provinces that produce, that have generated most of the seats for the current Liberal government in Ottawa, headed by Justin Trudeau. And with New York City and Detroit on either side, they're looking and saying, well, we're actually pretty close to uh, areas that are, that are where we're seeing a lot of infection. We want to maintain the border uh, closure if we can in order to prevent the Americans from coming up and spreading the disease north of the border. So they've been very cautious, whereas I think the Americans have been much more willing to open up. So that's interesting. And it gets, it gets to sort of the broader question that I had was that, you know, you have this push in the United States to reopen. And then if you have on the other side of the border, the Canadians are not as willing to open back up. Who who are the ones actually saying, let's keep the border closed? Is it the Canadians or is it the United States? Well, th- this is, I think, another fascinating dimension of the challenge. So the U.S. unilaterally closed its borders to transit from China uh, really early on. And then later, the European Union, uh, Great Britain and Ireland and other and other jurisdictions. But Canada and Mexico were both treated differently. The U.S. proposed joint restrictions with those governments in which the border security cooperation that had developed since, since September 11, 2001, a lot, had fostered a lot of data sharing and coordination between uh, border authorities and inspectors so that they, the U.S. felt confident that it had good visibility as to what was going on on the Canadian or the Mexican side of the border. And so we restricted uh, transit to what they called essential transit only. And uh, it was a little clearer what qualified as essential on the Canadian side than on the Mexican side. This, this took a while to work out. But um, both Canada and Mexico have put those restrictions in place. And Canada has argued that we should continue the restrictions uh, we've renewed them now twice, so we're in our third 30-day period of the restrictions, and we review them every 30 days based on uh, what seems to be this, the safest activity. Now, Canada um, has been comfortable with that because most of the commercial traffic uh, that supports the supply chain and keeps the Canadian economy going has been deemed essential. So we're looking at, at say, Detroit, uh, Port Huron, the two big Michigan crossings, or if you go to New York, uh, Buffalo, Niagara, uh, Buffalo, Fort Erie, those crossings are at about 80 to 85% normal truck traffic. Uh, that means that most of, the, most of the supply chain is continuing to operate, so that the cost of keeping the border shut hits hard on the tourism economy. It, it hits on families who want to get together, but it's, it's a more bearable for Canada because the essential stuff, the stuff that keeps uh, Canadians going, uh, Canada relies on exports for about 65% of their GDP. And of that, about 70, 72% uh, is just trade with the U.S. So this is a lifeline border, and they feel that the restrictions are being managed well enough to allow the goods to go back and forth, but... Um, but with with the people not flowing, that it it is actually helping to stop the spread of the pandemic at the same time. So Canada has been quite supportive of the border restrictions so far. 
So really what you're saying is it takes two to tango on a border closure. And even if the United States wanted to open it back up to allow more tourism and things like that, the, if the Canadians aren't on board, the border's going to stay the way it is. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, we, we could try a unilateral shutdown, but we would quickly realize, I think, if we did that, that our factories would shut down as well because we rely on these uh, inputs that are coming from Canada for a wide range of products. One of the most uh, controversial examples that got some press a few weeks ago was uh, was 3M, the company in, in Minnesota that makes personal protective equipment. And this got uh, got some headlines because uh, the White House had suggested that 3M should fill U.S. orders uh, before it filled foreign orders for personal protective equipment because, of course, demand is so great. And 3M uh, pointed out that they have a supply chain that extends into Canada and several of the uh, paper fibers uh, that they use in uh, disposable masks, they draw in from Canada, from uh, pulp mills that are specifically tailored to that grade of paper. It's exactly what the company needs. They don't have an alternative supplier. And their argument is, you know, you, you can do this. You can force us to supply one side or the other. But if the border's closed to us, you know, we're going to lose some inputs and we're not going to be able to produce anything for the Americans either. This is one thing, and I, and I, I know you, you worked a lot with Congress. It's, if there's a lesson in this great social experiment that we're under with coronavirus, it's that these things called supply chains that are invisible to most of us are actually the key to our prosperity. And it's dangerous when you start making policy completely oblivious to those interconnections because what ends up happening is that you don't get the outcome you want. You may actually be killing the goose that has been laying your golden eggs. And the shutdown's been costly for both our economies, Canada as well as the U.S., uh, we need economic growth where we can get it, and um, I think we have we have to legislate and govern uh, with a greater sensitivity and awareness of these linkages. The last time our listeners heard your voice, it was a uh, edited version of the event that we did with Duncan on supply chain issues. So that's been a few weeks ago now. You just mentioned supply chains. How, how are our supply chains doing? Are you getting the sense that things are getting better or are they about the same? You mentioned the truck traffic between the U.S. and Canada is, is operating you know, basically close to normal. So how are these supply chains doing? Are they figuring this out? And will we stop seeing the shortages that we've been talking about? Sure. Well, that that's the critical question and it varies by sector. Um Certainly some sectors have done better with their supply chains. I, I want to say something about supply chains since I keep bringing them up. Um, I, th this is one of the great stories of the last 20 years, I guess, um, at a time when economies like China's uh, were becoming so competitive because of low-wage labor. They seemed to be able to um, do everything cheaper, faster, better. We nonetheless maintained a lot of our our employment in North America because of the way we learn to manage our supply chains. Um, if you think about it, uh, what they say at DHS is goods at rest are goods at risk because if, if things are sitting there, they can be tampered with. It's the same in the supply chain. If you have a warehouse full of spare parts, those spare parts are 
an asset. They, they represent money because you had to pay to buy them or build them, and you're now storing them, which costs you additional money. And the goal of, of efficient supply chain management is to make sure that you are producing those goods just in time for their use. And there are different lag rates. Uh, before September 11, just to give you an example in the automotive sector, um, you would typically see just-in-time windows of about seven to 10 minutes. So you had seven to 10 minutes worth of inventory before the next load had to come and to keep your, your assembly line going. That's an incredibly tight window. After September 11, we lost a bit of that. You, you have windows that are a little bit more like an hour and you have some built-in redundancy because of the risk of, of a border disruption. And of course, in Mexico, we never quite got our, our shipments to Mexico to be on that tight a time frame. That's usually an overnight time frame, but that's still very, very good. And the efficiency we've gotten out of that process has kept us competitive, even with the relatively higher wages that we have in North America compared to, um, compared to China and India and other countries. And this is something that now, as the U.S. and China are finding themselves in an abroad trade conflict, more than trade, obviously, and there's pressure on companies to move their supply chains from Asia to nearshore them, to, to extend them and maybe thicken them with Canada and Mexico, this question is, is crucial. If we can keep our supply chains humming along, uh, this will keep our, our shared economies uh, prosperous going well into the future. But it, I think the challenge that we have now, and this comes back to sort of where we started with, with this, I think that increasingly supply chain uh, dynamics are going to be judged by companies on the basis of political risk. And when I say political risk, I mean, I mean certainly the risk that, say, China might steal your intellectual property or, or you might have some, some area that you're not so sure the quality control has, has been sustained at a high level and so you might get defective products. So those are some of the complaints we've heard about China over the years. But more importantly, that the governance transparency and visibility of the entire supply chain is, is at a high level. So this, this means two things. One, good standards, good enforceability, the ability of the company to know what's going on at, at plants and, and be able to see and inspect, but also to know that performance is being verified by the appropriate regulatory authority. And I think one of the challenges we will be facing as we come out of coronavirus in North America, it will be addressing public sector productivity in that regulatory space. Um, what I mean by that is not a race to the bottom of the lowest standards. In fact, it'll be the opposite. How do we get the highest standards? But the time it takes to get approval for a product to go to market, the time it takes to do inspections has to be shorter and shorter and shorter so that we aren't slowing decisions down that will, that will add to the, to the losses for the company because we're, we're basically slowing the process down to let regulators do their work. We have to come up with a process where our governance is good, but it's efficient so that business can, uh, can continue to improve uh, our, their overall uh, operation of their assets so that we, 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 get, we can maintain high wages and we can maintain this economic activity. And if we can pull that off, I think North America will be uh, the market to beat globally for quite a long time. And it's interesting, too, because we were talking about supply chains back in January on this podcast when we were talking about the tariffs and how supply chains were starting to change was certainly as regards China, 
with the steel tariffs and and other uh, metals being tariffed, um, and and then with other tariffs that were placed on goods coming from China, those tariffs are still in place, um, and it has affected supply chains that way. And then lay on top of that, we've got you know a new USMCA, new trade deals with you know phase one or you know whatever phase it is now with with China. Um, are we better off that we finished USMCA prior to this happening? And how does this new agreement kind of fit into all of these discussions about border closures and cross-border trade and all of that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think many Canadians and, and Mexicans certainly feel that it was, it was the right thing to do. And it, you just go back over the headlines the last couple of years, and it, it was pretty, a pretty rough renegotiation of NAFTA for both of them. Uh, a lot of harsh words, a lot of charges uh, from U.S. figures that Canada or Mexico was treating our trade unfairly. Um, there was a lot of political pressure on, uh, on both governments. We saw... Uh, we saw Justin Trudeau's government reduced to a minority government in an election last October. Uh, he'd lost some support because of the uncertainty over USMCA and a worry that U.S.-Canada relations weren't being managed as well on the Canadian side. That's just one factor, obviously. He's still in power, but, but with a much reduced majority. And, um, and then you go to Mexico, where uh, Enrique Peña Nieto uh, managed to negotiate the deal, but the, the actual finishing was done under AMLO. And so both governments took a lot of hits for sticking with this uh, negotiation and trying to get it over the finish line. But now that we have it, we have the most important thing, I think, for business going forward, which is some stability and certainty. We know that North America's inside uh, inside the circle, and you see that reflected in the way that we're managing the border. We've we've reinforced the idea that there is such a thing as a North American market, and that politics and policy will bend to accommodate that activity, which is something we we don't see almost anywhere else. There, the number of trade disputes we have with the Europeans, with with even the British, as we start trade negotiations with them, uh, ideally in time for post Brexit. Um, the U.S. didn't enter the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we have this trade conflict with China, as well as some conflicts with India and other parts of the world. North America is a little sea of tranquility where the rules may not be perfect, and I, I, I certainly agree with many people who criticize USMCA as a step backward rather than forward in terms of how liberal trade is and how much we remove barriers, but we settle the uncertainty. And this uncertainty over what the trade rules were going to be was hurting investment in Canada. It was slowing business activity. People were waiting to see what's going to happen. Now we have coronavirus on top of it where there's an additional uncertainty. Will I be able to operate? Will jurisdictions accommodate my, my supply chain? Will, will, when will this period be over? The quarantine lighten? Uh, all of those questions create plenty of uncertainty that's going to slow people from hiring people back. If they've been furloughed, it will slow new investments in plant and equipment. But we've sent a powerful signal that North America is a U.S. commitment and that Canada and Mexico are inside the tent. I think that's, that's also going to be very beneficial to us as we come out of coronavirus um, to know who our friends are and, and to show it by, uh, by really reinforcing the, the supply chains that we have that link us together. 
Well, this is interesting, Chris. And as always, thank you for lighting our path on this cross-border trade and understanding these supply chains. I think it's something that not, not very many people think about supply chains in a normally operating economy. But of course, it's been pushed to the front in the last couple of months. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Aaron. And to our listeners, don't forget that you can like and subscribe on your podcast distributor. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us at needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org. And until next time, this is the Need to Know podcast, and thanks for listening.